Really awesome. I'm kind of hoping that when I retire, I can go into music management. I think that would be awesome to be his manager. Love it. Good job. Yeah. That was so pleasing. Yep. And all the uh, rapscallions can run off to Children's Church with their overseers. Everybody get a uh, bulletin insert so you can start scribbling. They're available. There's some in the back. There's some up front if you need them. Um, yeah, I purposefully left it open. I want you guys to write. I'd love everybody to, to try to grow on that. That would be awesome. So before we start, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. It isn't going to hurt. Thank you, Father, so much for this, this place and, uh, and for each other. Thank you for your word, and thank you for how you've called us to know you. You actually, you beg us to come to you for wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And, uh, Father, our assurance of where we are going and how things are unfolding, it all lies in you. And so we trust you, and we thank you for this time. We ask you to have full sway and to speak to us individually through your Holy Spirit here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was preparing for this thing today, um, I was looking forward to it. I was really uh, enjoying the process of growing in it, and I, I was struggling with coming up for a, with a name uh, for a while. And I, I finally came up with a name, and it, and it came to me uh, kind of late in the process. And so I wasn't sure. I was like, Lord, is that really what you want to call it? What's the world coming to? I mean, it's kind of dim. And then I was at my office, and I was studying for an exam, and I study by taking quizzes. It's building a building certification, this commercial building exam. And I take these tests. And after a while, the tests, these little quizzes are kind of rote. They're pretty easy, actually. So I'm like, I've, I have to get distracted, so I'll research more. I'll look in the book more. So I started playing music on YouTube. And my favorite group, if you'd flip the slide, is actually um, a group called Leonid and Friends. I don't know if you ever heard of these people. But they play Chicago and I loved Chicago when I was growing up. It's a great group. And they play it so well that, I mean, I'm fascinated by it. It sounds more like Chicago than Chicago does. And they've toured the U.S. They're all Russian. They don't speak a lick of English. And they sing in English an amazing version. I, I highly recommend it if you like Chicago. But anyway, they have a song, and it's titled, What's the World Coming to? So I was like, okay, that's it. That's When that song came up, I was like, okay, that's my confirmation right there. I know that that's what the title's going to be. So you can thank Landed and Friends, a bunch of Russians. It's their fault. That's why we have this title. But we're opening First uh, Thessalonians 5, and we're going to read the whole thing. So please open your Bibles. We're going to put a finger in First Thessalonians 5 and then Matthew 24 when you get around to it. So this is Paul talking to the church at Thessalonica. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace, there's security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pangs come upon a pregnant woman, and they won't be able to escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let's keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might be with him. And therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. And we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. And see that no one repays anyone with evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. When you look around you this past year especially, um, I I can't imagine any one of you saying, things are going great. (laughs) Everything's coming together. In fact, I think most of us would say, this is insane. Things are flying apart. I've had people actually tell me they feel like the world is coming apart. Maybe you've had other people tell you that too. I'm not going to go into great depth, but obviously this is a year of being tested, sorely tested. We've seen institutions in our nation become corroded and fall apart before our eyes. Could you flip the slide, please? There are things happening at a national level which scare the daylights out of us. Um, they scare me. And i got to tell you, I, I may have told you before personally, but I actually was grieving for a long time leading up to the election. I really felt like maybe what it might be like if you lost a close loved one because I was still grieving and it hadn't happened yet. You know, the whole process hadn't concluded yet. And I was puzzled by that, and I was really wrestling with it, and I prayed about it. I was really discouraged. And um, and it, it, the Lord revealed to me that I, I was grieving what I used to know, what I thought was amazing about this country. I was grieving the loss of so many amazing things. Yeah, I knew the dark days were coming. We all know that that's what's prophesied, but but I struggled with it. And I don't know if you are too now or if you kind of, God's given you grace to get through it. But there are some things that are really alarming that are still going on, and you may be aware of some of them. I'm going to hit some highlights here. What you see in front of you is a graph of the U.S. money supply, It's over the last five years. What you see on the tail end, the little hockey stick there, that is the U.S. money supply from 2020 to the present. The Federal Reserve Bank has been, I'd like to say they're printing money, but that's not exactly how it works. What they're doing is they're purchasing commercial bonds, bank bonds, and investments using electronic money to keep enough liquidity in the economy to keep the economy from grinding to a halt, literally grinding to a halt. That's $2.6 trillion of money that's been printed in the last year. I don't need to 
beat you with it, but you can imagine what that does to the value of the dollar, That what that's going to do to the value of the dollar. There's no real wealth to back that up. In addition, the interest rate is still held at 0.25% for lending to banks for investment because no one wants to borrow money. No one can borrow money. But in addition, last year, for the first time ever, the banks actually paid, the Federal Reserve Bank paid banks to take money when we were running into a liquidity crisis. They couldn't print currency to get it to the banks. The banks couldn't keep their 10% reserve requirements for loans. Loans weren't getting repaid, so they paid banks to take money. Paid them. That's crazy. Banks have to borrow money and pay the Fed back. So that's a clue of what's coming financially. This is a disaster waiting to hit us in the face, guys. So the Suck the Life Out of the Room tour has started. I have officiated it. But just be aware, this is a dangerous thing. If you could flip to the next slide. This here is uh, spending. It's entitlement spending just in the U.S. This is what the government spent last year. You can see the jump. That was COVID payouts, $1.2 trillion. It's not backed up by anything, but that's what they spent. They had to spend it. They felt they needed to, and that's what it looks like. So now our deficit is, uh, well, three-point-something trillion over what it was last year or the year before. I'm sorry. But anyway, our total debt is $28 trillion, um, et cetera. It's bad. Each taxpayer owes $222,000 right now. That's how it looks. Move to the next slide, please. And then we can talk about masks, what happened with the COVID response last year. And regardless of what our personal opinions are, the science and the data were not what drove policy and still are not driving policy. And unfortunately, things like, for example, hydroxychloroquine and zinc were shelved as treatments that would have prevented the loss of millions of lives around the world. They were shelved largely worldwide at the leading of the World Health Organization, National Institutes of Health, and the CDC. And recently, the CDC in November released a very quiet retraction saying maybe it wasn't necessary to do that and maybe it's a, an effective treatment. Things like that should bug us. We have leaders who are supposed to be leading using science, data, making policy based on fact and good input, but that's not what's been happening. And the masks are an example of it. Double masks, there's no science anywhere to back that up. And imagine what this is doing to a society as a whole. Homicide is up 33% last year. Drug addiction is up 13%. I couldn't get alcoholism rates. I think that's kind of a latent indicator. But get this, 25% of kids 16 to 24, sorry, I'm calling you a kid, 25% um, had suicidal ideations last year. That's from the CDC. That's a huge jump. The impact of mass on our culture is catastrophic in the long run. There's a study put out by a group of scientists from Duke, Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins University, and Harvard that put together an estimate. It was purely an economic estimate. They estimated 20 million lives are going to be lost over the next 10 years due to the long-term secondary effects of the COVID lockdowns and the COVID response. 
These are scientists. They didn't come into this with an agenda. They're coming from different liberal universities. They're economists. They're just looking at numbers and trying to find out what the probabilities are. But when you take that together, you realize this is something that's going to impact our culture. It's going to impact our nation. It's going to impact the nation's economy. It's going to impact all of us as a result. And these are discouraging things that we need to just sort of embrace right now. This is where we're going. One more thing I'd want to throw out, if we could flip to the next slide. There's kind of another unprecedented thing, as if we should use that word, the violence that we saw this year, the violence from BLM and Antifa in particular, which are not, contrary to public opinion, BLM is no longer a movement about race. It was hijacked a long time ago. It is a movement to destroy some of the cultural values in this country and to impose socialism wherever they can. And I'm telling you things that some of you already know and some of you may be shaking your heads. It's not hard to find this information. This is the kind of stuff that's being tolerated in our nation now because the the legal system is no longer prosecuting effectively violent riots. It's not. Look at Portland. Look at Seattle. The only cities that actually recovered from some of this violence were the ones that did prosecute. And so, as a result, lawlessness is is on the increase in our country. And when you combine that with the effects of COVID on the legal system itself, not able to process, give people due process, not able to hold people, not able to actually try people, the impacts of this, so my friends in law enforcement tell me, are long-reaching. It's going to take a long time for this knot of people who have been getting away with this stuff to actually get processed through when they reoffend again. The border is now open. You know that. Immigration is going to be, illegal immigration is just pouring in at this point. Once again, the wall is not going to be completed. Mineral and oil leases on federal lands have been stopped. Oil prices are going to go up, which means gas prices are going to go up. These things are all going to have a cumulative impact, and we're going to see them real soon. Narcotics legalization, no bail criminal charges, the defunding of law enforcement, all those things have ripple effects. So, should this make you mad? Should it make me mad? Should it upset me? I wouldn't tell you if I wasn't upset. I wouldn't tell you if it was at the front of my mind. It's important that we understand that this is real. But I'm here to give you the good news. That was the bad news. Like I said, that was the suck the life out of the room tour. But the reality is, for our nation, we are in it. We are in the midst of this, and God has a plan for us specifically. Whether this nation succeeds or fails, it's not in our hands. But we know some things about what's coming. They make me sad. They probably shock you and make you sad. We should despise evil. We should loathe lies. It should grieve us to see evil triumph and entropy reign. We hate to see suffering in the world. They're homeless people. I do feel for them. I'm sure you do too. People are living out in the elements, addicted to drugs, a good portion of them, 30 to 50%. But still, they're living in the elements. How bad is that? Did they lose their home? Is there any way to reach them? There are poor people in our communities who, in the same position that they were before, shut-ins, cripples, people who can't get out, who now don't even have neighbors to help them out. It's hard to see this happen. But I'm not surprised, and I don't think you should be either. If we have the next slide. Next I'm not surprised. There's a couple, there's actually four reasons why. The first is, three reasons, 
the nature of man is unchanged. Right? Some of you may know Judges 17.6. This is when Israel's kings had basically gone away, gone astray. And in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which explains why there was idolatry and poverty and sinfulness abounding in the land that God had given to Jacob. And because there was no king in Israel, there was no king in the hearts of the individuals who were living in Israel. And so this could be translated, if the king on your throne is you, where does God get to sit? Think about this nation. Alexis de Tocqueville said it really well, when America's people cease to be good, she will cease to be great. We know this. Their goodness comes from an inherent righteousness, not of their own, but from God. And it same translates to the world. A world without Jesus is a world in chaos and sin. So do these times worry you? Do they make you worry about the future? Do they make you fearful? Some of us want to put it all back together again. We, want, we would really like to see us, our nation, for example, restored to some semblance of what it was with honesty and representation, with good elections, legal elections, fair elections. I'd like to fix things. But is it really going to fix things if the problem is who's on the throne in individual hearts? And I'm not saying we should back off and we shouldn't participate in politics or finance or that we shouldn't comment to people about what we see wrong and how we should elect good leaders. But i got to ask you, are we going to fix things with politics? Are we going to fix it with policy? Without God on the throne of each heart in this nation, all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to put Humpty Dumpty together again. And we need to get along with that. I think some of us, myself included, have been wanting to fix it. That's part of the anger as the election came up. Like, this is wrong. This shouldn't be. But the truth is, without Jesus on people's thrones in their hearts, it's not going to change. This is the evidence of that happening. The church has been asleep. We have not been evangelizing. We've not been reaching the world. And as a result, the world is just shooting off the cliff. So don't be surprised. Number two. Jesus warned us this would happen. This is where Matthew 24 comes in. This is when the disciples were asking him the night before he was going to be arrested, or the night of his arrest, actually. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately, and they said, okay, tell us, they said, when will this happen? And he, was, he had just spoken about the temple being torn down. He said the temple was going to be destroyed, not one stone left on another. They said, when is this going to happen? And then what's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They had it all mixed up. They thought it was all going to be together. Like, when is the temple coming down and you're coming back to fix everything? And he says, no, watch out, that no one deceives you. For many are going to come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah and I will deceive many. You'll hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And he goes on, At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But... The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. 
and then the end will come. What we're seeing around us, I mean, the United States is not in the Bible, right? You know that. We're not in there, okay? We as the church are in it, but our nation is not in it. So what we see happening in the U.S., and the U.S. is a major pillar in the world, economically and militarily, culturally, we're a huge pillar. But what's happening here is just a small, tiny part of what is necessarily falling into place. There's other significant prophecies that are already fulfilled and being fulfilled. Think about Israel. Before 1948, no one would have said, yeah, Israel will be back in the land. They'll be secure in the land. It's like, never would have thought of it. Well, in 1948, they became a nation again. And they are fairly secure, but they're not totally secure. The Bible says that they're going to be without walls and they'll be at peace. But realize, almost every Gulf nation in the Persian Gulf has signed trade agreements with Israel. They're on good terms. They're actually talking with Israel, going back and forth. The equivalent of diplomatic terms. They formerly had no connection. Israel is financially secure. They've got gas and oil reserves off the coast. They're going to be fabulously wealthy for a long time to come. They're still the leader in biotech and all kinds of other things. Their, their output is amazing for that little nation. What else is, what else is happening? Well, we see wars and rumors of wars. That continues. We see an increase of earthquakes, okay? 24 earthquakes on average per year instead of 16 just in the last five years. Just saying. It's more. We're seeing lawlessness abounding around the world. And we're seeing Christians being persecuted continually and even increasingly so. I don't know if you noticed, but in China, they started a huge crackdown here recently on unauthorized churches. They started burning books. Pastors are being imprisoned. So the underground church is even more underground, but they're making a huge effort to crush it because the communist government is afraid of the church. They're afraid of what that would mean to everybody. But I'll throw this caution out there. This is a commentator named Ron Rhodes. We've got to realize that we don't know how all this plays in. Some commentators point to every earthquake, every political upheaval, and every attack on Israel as a sure sign that the end times are rapidly approaching. And while the events may signal the approach of the last days, they are not indicators that the end times have arrived. We don't know. Paul warned that the last days would bring a marked increase in false teaching, like 1 Timothy 4.1. People will be taught by demons, he says. And the last days are described as perilous times because of the increasing evil nature of man and the people who actively oppose the truth. That's the one thing that I think we're kind of used to seeing a lot of false teaching going on. But we should be aware that false teaching will increase. There will be an increase in people being led astray by false teaching. So we need to be on our guard against that. The third reason why we shouldn't be surprised is because this should be a great wake-up call. Like one of those things where you've been dozing off in front of the TV and all of a sudden you snark yourself awake and you realize it's 3 in the morning and the TV's still running and you're watching an infomercial on Jazzercise or something. Okay? The world around us is not really what we think it is sometimes. We tend to look at the world as a nice place, somewhere, something comfortable. Like we love that song, This Is My Father's World. I mean, it's a great tune. The truth is, right now, Satan's got a grip on it. And we need to understand that, as Tozer said, this is not a playground, this is a battleground. We are at war, but our biggest problem is we don't realize we're at war. 
We battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But somehow we forget that, and we just want to be comfortable. We want it to be okay, and we want the institutions to work again. We want the government to fix it, but it's not going to happen. We're in a battleground. So we shouldn't be surprised, but we should be soberly aware how much our adversary hates us in this battle. He hates us. Satan detests us. He's, we are despicable to him. He wants to destroy us, and he wants to separate us from God. Either one will work. Either we quit because we're tired and we just want to be left alone, or he destroys us because of our own sin, or who knows, whatever, whatever tool he can use. And you might just be thinking to yourself, well, I'm a nobody. I mean, I, uh, why would Satan shoot at me? <laughs> like, like a little red cross on my little thing here. He's not going to shoot at me. I'm a corpsman. Come on. Well, or better yet, I'm a 98-pound spiritual weakling. I don't even know my Bible. Why is he going to hurt me? But the truth is, there's a bigger strategy that we're involved in. And I just came across this the other day and was reminded of it. And I want you to get a glimpse of this. Ephesians 3. We think about battling spiritual forces of evil, and we think, oh my gosh, that sounds really hard. But God's ultimate strategy is this. Paul speaking to the Ephesians, though I'm the least of the saints... Grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, that is, the Gentiles, brought in. And God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold, complex wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Whether we defeat Satan or his demon face-to-face is totally in God's hands. However... The purpose behind this is that we are going to make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places what is the mystery of Christ. Simply by existing, by being obedient, by ingesting the word and letting it come back up. Our job is actually to witness to angels and demons and thus inform them about the mysteries of God that they can't fathom. Angels long to look into these things, the mysteries, and they're puzzled. And the demons, too, are puzzled. So, with that in mind, go to the next slide. We need to know, we need to be secure that these things are not going to hurt us. And this is the good news. The good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ and his plan for us. So, I'm going to give you my version of it. Um, I believe in a pre-trib, pre-millennial, that's my, my stance. I believe that the millennium is not yet, it's to come. And I believe that we are not going to go through the tribulation. And it's a, it's a position that's founded in a lot of good doctrine. It's been around a long time. The early church fathers, up through well into the 400s, none of them thought anything different. It wasn't until about the 5th century that the idea that maybe there was another plan for the rapture of the church or that there was some other way of looking at revelation crept in. But based on their letters to each other and letters to the churches and the teachings of their disciples after them, this is what is sound doctrine. This is what I believe. And here's how the events are going to unfold. Some of you might see that weird word on the board. says harpazo, harpazo. That's rapture. This is the order of the events that I think the Bible teaches. The rapture of the church. And Christ is going to come on the clouds to Harpazo, to snatch away, to grasp, 
to grab, kidnap his church and all those who trust in him. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And at the same time, the dead in Christ will be resurrected and taken to heaven with us. And from our perspective today, this would be the next event in the timeline. That would be the next thing that happens to us. So the rapture would be the next imminent thing, and we don't know the time. And we don't know what other biblical prophecy needs to be fulfilled because so much already is fulfilled. The next thing is that the Antichrist is going to rise. Antichrist could be walking around now. The false prophet could be walking around now. I don't know. I don't think it's Gorbachev, although I had my worries back in the 80s. I wasn't sure. He had a big thing on his head. It was kind of demonic. It wasn't good. But it's not him. I don't know who it is. And if you do, keep it to yourself. After the church is taken away, a satanically empowered man is going to gain worldwide control with promises of peace. He's going to be conquering. He's going to be the conqueror. That's what that image of the man on the horse with a bow. That bow is a semi-strategic weapon. You can reach a long ways with it, and that's what it means. You have power to reach out, and people fear that power. He's a conqueror, not a guy with a bloody sword who goes around stabbing people. He's a shrewd military leader. And he'll be aided by the false prophet who heads up a religious system that supports the Antichrist. And you can see the scripture references there. And the next thing that happens is the process of the tribulation. It's kind of coincident. And that's a period of seven years in which God's judgment is poured out on a sinful world. It is God's judgment on sin in the earth. And even the earth is groaning with expectation for that. The earth is burdened by sin. I don't know if you realize that. His creation is burdened by it. There's seven trumpet judgments, seven seal judgments that take place in the first three and a half years, and then seven bowl judgments that take place in the last three and a half years that is also called the Great Tribulation or the Great Wrath of God, sometimes called the Day of the Lord. Depends how you look at it. So during the tribulation on earth, I believe the church is going to be in heaven. But there will be people still being converted, still believing in Jesus Christ here on earth. And there's a time when Israel itself has a remnant removed from them of believers and they're protected. The next thing that happens is the battle of Gog and Magog. So what is Gog and Magog? Well, a lot of people like talking about specific nations and all this stuff. I have no idea. It's the armies to the north, the armies to the east, and the armies to the south. That's pretty much the entire Mediterranean and Persian Gulf region. But if you look historically what the church fathers and others believed about this, they thought it was going to be something like Persia, you know, possibly Syria, and then Russia with Syria perhaps, I don't know, maybe Egypt. But there's going to be a battle there. The first part of the tribulation, Israel will be overwhelmed and they're going to knock the teeth in. Israel's going to win decisively, supernaturally, and it's going to be because of God's intervention. The next thing that happens, this will be right about the midpoint of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to break his covenant with Israel. So at this point, there is a temple rebuilt in Israel. Um, There has to be a temple rebuilt because they're going to be, at that point, offering sacrifices. The temple would have to be located where the Dome of the Rock is today on Solomon's old temple site. Can you imagine any Muslim wanting to give up that turf to have a temple built there? That's impossible. That would have to be a God thing. But that's what's going to happen. And this Antichrist is going to set himself up as God in that temple at the midpoint. 
So 144,000 of those Jews are going to be saved as the great wrath is poured out. They're going to realize that Jesus is their Savior. They're going to weep over him. And then a great persecution is going to break out against anybody else on the earth who's believing in Jesus Christ. Because realize, people are going to believe in Jesus Christ. There are going to be people who are getting saved during that time, but they're going to be suffering under this because they're here during the tribulation period. Then there's the Battle of Armageddon at Armageddon. And at the end of the tribulation, Jesus is going to return with the armies of heaven, and he's going to save Jerusalem from annihilation and defeat the armies of the nations under the banner of the Antichrist. And then the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be captured and thrown into the lake of fire. And at that point, the nations will be judged. Jesus is going to judge the survivors of the tribulation, separating the righteous from the wicked as sheep and goats. The righteous are going to enter the millennial kingdom but the wicked will not. And at that point, Satan is going to be bound and he'll be imprisoned for a thousand years as there's a reign on earth of Jesus Christ with his saints. This is called the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. I don't understand all of this, but I will tell you what I have come to understand is that we who would be reigning with him over an earth that has been obliterated. There will be people there. There will be survivors, a few, who are going to repopulate the earth. There is going to be a population which we govern with Jesus Christ in our new bodies because we've gone to heaven with him as the church. So when we come back, we're reigning with him. But during that time, the mystery to me is, what are we going to do? What are we going to reign over? How many people are left? All the boats in the ocean are gone. I mean, this is going to be the hugest rebuilding project ever, restoration of lands. I mean, I don't know, but it sounds like there's going to be a lot of work to do. And he will rule with an iron rod. He will rule with a rod of iron during that time. But at the end of that thousand years, Jesus gives one more opportunity for all to freely choose him, and mankind is going to fail again. And there will be a rebellion at the end of that thousand years. Satan is loosed. He's allowed to deceive many. And that is the end of it because Satan will be cast into the lake of fire never to reappear. I misspoke earlier. Satan's thrown into the abyss earlier, not into the lake of fire. But at the last great white throne judgment which follows... That is the one where all those in hell are brought forth and all the wicked from all eras of history will be resurrected to stand before God in a final judgment. The verdicts will be read and all of sinful humanity is finally thrown into the lake of fire. And following that, that is when there's a new heaven and a new earth. And that is when all things are new. He recreates and he's going to do something entirely new. The earth is going to dissolve. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to create for us a new eternity with him. That's where the Bible is extremely silent. I have no idea what this means. God wipes away all tears, he says. There'll be no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. The new Jerusalem will descend from heaven. It will appear over the current site of Jerusalem. It'll be in the air. And we will enjoy eternity with him. 
but I don't know what we're doing after that. I think he's going to write a new thing. So I've told you very emphatically what I believe, but I want you to know there are other points of view on this. Um, One of the most likely is that um, it's possible you could look at some of these scriptures and say, well, the church might go through part of the tribulation. Um, This is called the mid-trib or the pre-wrath position. And it's it's logical. You could look at some of the scriptures that point out to, um, like example, Matthew 24. Does he mean that we're going to be taken out before there's any judgment or during? Not quite sure how that plays out. But if you follow that pre-wrath or mid-trib position, just realize there's a couple of small little problems. One of them is there's a chronology issue um, because people who take the mid-trib position say there's a, a great tribulation that is avoided. That's what the that's what Jesus is referring to. We, we get out of that. Unfortunately, the references to the great tribulation occur so early, chapter 6 and 7 in Revelation, that it doesn't fit with an idea that later on in chapter 20, when the great wrath of God is poured out, um, it doesn't work. There's no other reference. So chronologically, it doesn't work. But it doesn't mean I'm wrong or they're wrong. It just means it's a mystery. The second thing is that the church is really not appointed to suffer because 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says the church has not been appointed to suffer wrath but to receive salvation. What kind of wrath? The great wrath or just a little wrath or maybe part of the wrath? Good question. Is it the great wrath of God? Because just the first 14 judgments alone include famine, poisoned rivers, darkened moon, bloodshed, earthquakes, uh, and torment, etc. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we're going to go through that or not because it says here in First Thessalonians 5, 9, the church has not been appointed to suffer wrath. So just keep that in mind. There are other positions out there that are premillennial, pre-trib, or mid-trib. It's all kind of reasonable, but there's a lot of questions, and we don't know for sure. There are missing pieces as the day of Christ approaches. Israel without walls, peace with their neighbors, um, the building of the temple. There is a Plan afoot right now. They have all the furniture, all the golden articles, all the utensils already built. The priests are looking for that perfect red heifer. They've been breeding forever for that red heifer that they're going to sacrifice. All this is ready to go. Orthodox Jews are standing by. The priesthood already has their roster. They're all set. They don't have the ground. They don't have the temple. They have money, but they don't have that. They have to reestablish the temple sacrifices. The church has to be removed in order for the Antichrist to come. Restraint has to be removed. That's not happened. But there is yet to be the economic devastation and political devastation that's needed in order for the Antichrist to rise and have the influence to create a new economic and social order. That is definitely making traction. There's a lot of traction on that. The Great Reset, you might have heard, might fit into that. That's a possibility. But we don't know. Just remember, Israel has never existed as a nation um, since early days until 1948. And that itself is amazing. And it's a miracle. They have it as an everlasting possession. And Ezekiel has prophesied that there's going to be a resuscitation of Israel. And there's a growing one. I don't know if you're aware. Joan informed me this morning. Um, at 8 o'clock local time today, um, Jews across the world, were uh, there's been a huge campaign to push Jews um, into praying for the return of the Messiah. So not just Orthodox, but even the mainstream Jews have been combining to ask people, beg people, pray for the return of the Messiah. 
they realize that they are so vulnerable right now uh, because of the military enemies, particularly Iran, with nuclear weapons right in their grasp. I mean, Iran is that close to finishing enough fissile material to have nuclear weapons to put on their scuds. And they're praying for the return of the Messiah, which is so sad. Messiah's already come. But what Messiah will arise? That's my question. Who's going to stand up to these rabbis who say he exists already and say, yeah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the guy? What kind of a deceiver will step in? Again, I don't know. I have no idea. But it's a mystery, and you've got to be thinking about it. We need to be discerning, again, Ron Rhodes, with these signs in mind in regard to the expectation of end times. Don't interpret singular events as a clear indication of the arrival of end times. We don't know. God has given us enough information, though, that we can be prepared, and that is what we're called to be as our hearts cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. One of my favorite commentators, David Guzik, says this, As Jesus answers these important, that important second question in Matthew 24, he makes some specific comments and predictions, but those comments and predictions are a source of significant disagreement among Christians. It's been that way for a long time. Why didn't Jesus simply say it clearly so there's no possibility we could misinterpret? Good question. One reason might be, it may seem vague or imprecise because God wants it to be vague and imprecise for us. He wants every heart to have reasons to be ready for Jesus' return. We wouldn't think of Jesus' return as an event far off on a timeline, he says. Maybe we should be thinking about it as kind of like parallel tracks that we don't know when they're going to converge. could happen at any second. It's close by, and as time goes on, snap, it'll happen. Another suggestion is that God is intentionally keeping this from being perfectly clear because he wants Satan to be confused. Satan is a limited creature. He's not God. He is not omniscient. He'd like to think so. But maybe Satan is confused by this, and it keeps him from knowing how he's going to act next. And so there's a lot of different interpretations out there. The two mainstream ones still leave some room for concern, disagreement, mystery. Just be ready. We need to be ready. So the question is not, what is the world coming to here? I want to ask you, how then shall I live? How then shall you live? If we're supposed to live in expectancy, how then shall we live? Our security and our stability is not in our surroundings. We say this, you'll hear it from the pulpit from time to time, but the truth is we look at our surroundings all the time to give us security. We look at comforts, stability, tradition. We look at things we're used to. Shoot, even in churches, if, I mean, let's be honest. There are times when if we don't have things going our way, we get irritated because, no, this is the way church is supposed to be. You're supposed to let me have my seat up front on the right. Or, no, we should do the songs in front instead of at the back end, you know, of the service. We get frustrated with that because we want that stability, but the truth is God doesn't want us to trust in our surroundings. And here's one of the ways I know this is true because this year really brought it out. How many of you guys actually tell your family members or people you meet, hey, drive safe today? Be safe out there, right? Safe? Like, <laughs> what is safe? Is it possible to be safe? Really, think about this. Can you be safe? When it's your time, my friends, it's your time. 
right? We use safety as a term to cover things that we mean actually to be other things. What we really mean to say is like, be careful, okay? Don't, don't go too fast down the road, Robbie, because you're driving too fast. I say that all the time to Robbie. That's what we mean to say. But the truth is, when we say safety, we are saying a word that means a particular thing. There is no safety in our surroundings because, once again, this world is a battleground. It is not a playground. This is not the place where we're going to have travel mercies all the time. Okay? It's not necessarily what God has for us. It might be. But maybe we should be looking at it as, don't be afraid. Be fearless. Stability is found in Jesus Christ. Perfect love drives out fear. If we're afraid of our security, if we're afraid we're going to get the disease, if we're afraid we're going to lose our job, are we really trusting in God to provide for us? Are we living in love? No. Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Our security and our hope is found in our destiny with Jesus Christ, on that path of redemption with him. And he's the one who promised it. He's the author and perfect of our faith. The second thing is, how then shall I live? The question is, well, you should live like you long for his appearing. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin. He's done that. But he will bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. If you don't look for Jesus Christ, if you're not longing for him to come back, you're kind of missing the boat. We're missing the boat. First Timothy 4.8, And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but it's for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing, who are longing for his appearing. Do you long for his appearing? i got to confess, there have been times when, especially when I was discouraged about this country and about institutions I love and I fought for, I was depressed. I was looking at those things. I wasn't looking at Jesus Christ, and I wasn't thinking about his return. But we have security with him. But that security comes at a price. It's like, when are you coming? Not too hard to do that. And what are you going to do with today? That's the third thing. The phrase carpe diem is misused. You might have seen the movie Dead Poets Society. It's kind of an Epicurean term. A Roman philosopher, Horace, is the one who supposedly started it, but it got picked up by the Epicureans also. And they were the ones who were hedonists. They were the ones that said, ah, live for today. You know, what you do in the body, it's not going to hurt your spirit. Eat, drink, be merry. Come on, live up. You only live once. That's what that carpe diem really started with, seize the day. But seize the day has another meaning. The flip side of that is once you're in Jesus Christ, well, now, now, You can seize it for him. You don't have to seize it for your own pleasure. Don't get me wrong. Even Ecclesiastes talks about, (laughs) hey, it's good to just sort of eat, drink, and enjoy your work because toiling under the sun is hard, and it doesn't produce much. That's okay. But realize you can seize it for Jesus Christ. You don't have to let it escape and disappear and become meaningless toil. And it comes with contentment. And it comes with also the idea that the Westminster Catechism gives us because Westminster Catechism, question number one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's seizing the day, enjoying God, glorifying him. 
looking for opportunities to seize the seconds you have with somebody who either does or doesn't know Jesus Christ and glorifying God in that. This is how Jesus spoke to the church in Philadelphia, you remember. The ones with little faith hanging on. They were on the second knot on the end of their rope. They're just clinging on there, right? He says, because you've kept my word with patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. Well, sounds like you're going to miss the wrath. To try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. See to it that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. If you just hang on and seize the day and seize the moments, if you just hang in there and testify to the spiritual forces around what Jesus Christ is doing in your life, that is enough. That's all you got to do. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 5 here as we close up. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let's keep awake and sober. That's a worthy thing to do to seize the day. Encourage one another. Build one another up just as you're doing. Another good thing you can do to seize the day. Respect those who labor among you or over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them highly because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Those are good instructions. That's how you can seize the day. Be peaceful with each other. We urge you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, seizing the day. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice, always, seize the day. Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. That's seizing the day. So questions for you as we're closing up here. Some of you I know well. Some of you I don't. Um, Some of you don't know me very well. But I want to ask you a personal question. Do you know Jesus Christ and does he know you? Because if you don't know Jesus Christ, I just described to you a plan that he has entailed that's going to save those who do believe in him from a wrath that is unsurvivable and the torture is unbelievable and from an eternity separated from God. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I just explained to you your damnation. And I would pray that you would consider putting your trust in him. Not because he's condemning you, but because you're separating yourself from a life that is totally blessed. And an eternal value, an eternal service. And I'd encourage you to seriously think about this. And for those of us that love Jesus Christ, yeah, we do. We struggle with it. I mean, we all struggle. We're in the world. My question for you is, are you ready to repent? Have you been living for security on a different level than what he is providing? You might remember when Jesus was reclining at a table at a Pharisee's house, and uh, it's in, the, in Luke, I think, chapter 6. And this Pharisee is trying to trip him up. And then a woman came in, and she started weeping over his feet and rubbing her hair on his feet and washing them and then pouring expensive oil over it, over his feet. And the master of the house was offended. He's like, there's a sinful woman touching this guy. What the heck? What's going on here? And he says, Simon, you know, two men owed another man money. One owed 50 denarii, another owed 500 denarii. 
They were both forgiven their debt. Which one? Which one was more appreciative of that? He says, well, the guy, 500, obviously. He says, exactly. This woman who came in has been wiping my feet with her tears. You didn't even wash my feet with water. You didn't have your lowest servant wash my feet with water. She's been coming in here and pouring oil over my feet. And you didn't even anoint my head with oil. She's kissing my feet. And you didn't give me one of those Jewish kind of kisses when I came in. Where are we in our love for Jesus Christ? Where are we in our love for God? Question. Do you need to repent? Is there stuff in the way? Do you feel like the prodigal's brother who just doesn't quite struggling with it? Well, the solution is to stop tolerating sin in your life. Stop tolerating contention in your life with people, with other believers. Stop tolerating jealousy. Stop tolerating lust in your life. You need to dethrone the internet if that's your passion. If that's what it is that's keeping you from a relationship with Jesus Christ that trusts him with your eternity, then dethrone it. We used to call it kill your television back in the 80s and 90s. I recommend it. It worked in my life. But what else is in the way between you and Jesus Christ? I have no idea. I'm writing down and repeating what God has given to me to say. But I know there are people out there who have done some really rotten stuff to other people. And in every congregation it happens. Everywhere you go, there are people who can't forgive themselves. And I'm gonna, I have to ask this question. Are you struggling with forgiving yourself for stuff you've done? Because if you have to forgive yourself, you don't need Jesus Christ. Okay? You can't forgive yourself. Only Jesus Christ can forgive you, and he has. So if you're struggling with that sin, you need to lay it down, let it go, and let him absorb it. Because he paid the price for that sin. So... There is no obstacle between you and Jesus Christ except that which you allow to happen and your eternal salvation and your future with him as we go down this incredible roller coaster of the world dissolving. That trust in him is going to be really important and we need to work on that. Jesus restored Peter in John chapter 20 three times and you know what happened. Do you love me? Do you agape me, Peter? Yes, Lord, I phileo you. You're my brother, okay. Well, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Three times he did that. Some of you might need to do that three times also. But then you'll notice Jesus asks you to do something. Every time he saves you, he saves you to something, not just from something. So think about that. I don't know how God's going to use this in your life feel like I've done an okay job being the messenger today. But uh, I want you to understand that um, Jesus Christ is sufficient, and we're going we're gonna to have an incredible journey as we watch the world change before us. have no idea when it's going to happen, but we're not going to have to suffer. So what little suffering we go through now is nothing in comparison. So worship team, you want to come on up? going to join in some song here. One song in particular really touches my heart. It's probably old as the hills as I'll fly away. And Lori was nice enough to put it on the list today. 
But I think about all those in heaven who have gone on before me and think about them singing this song every day with Jesus. That's what's going to happen to us. We're all going to fly away. So let's join together.